Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? Well, Calgary has had quite the bit of warm weather, but there is a major cold front coming in for this week where we're going to go back down to minus 30 Celsius, which I think at that low of a temperature, it's going to be the same in Fahrenheit. Minus 40s where they where they line up. Ah, well, that gives you an idea, listener, of how damn cold it's going to be this week. But with the weather moving in today, it means that I have a pressure headache. Joy. Wonderful. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. I'm 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 all right. Yeah. How do you feel about this movie? After doing some research, because like, I have no context for this. So I have never seen this week's movie, but I've like seen clips and trailers from it for a long time. I think I remember seeing clips from it as like a little kid and it like scaring me at the time. Okay. But I've never actually seen the movie. So. So what are we watching? So this week, Sarah, we are watching 4D Man. From 1959, directed by Irvin Yeworth. What part scared you as a kid? Was it just the general vibe that you saw? So when this movie talks about there being a 4D man, which is to say like a man who exists in four dimensions or can can move through the fourth dimension, um, I think it is important to state up at the front that they don't mean the fourth dimension as many like scientists or philosophers or whoever would speak of it now. So, so typically um, we tend to call time the fourth dimension with the first three being length, breadth, and width. H.G. Uh, Wells identified time as a fourth dimension in his novel, The Time Machine, back in the 1890s. The idea being that like dimensions are things you can move in and like that you exist in, right? Mm, so okay. like you have length, you have breadth, you have width. You also can like move in those three dimensions and you also exist in time and you move in time. Just the, the Only difference. Only one direction. Yeah. The difference with time is that you move in one direction at a controlled rate of one second per second. So... You said H.G. Wells came up with that in like the 1890s or right. whatever. So <laughs> it's not like that idea had, was like brand new no. after this movie. So this movie really has no uh, scientific reason to not have the 4D man be with time. Sure. So in the 1950s, like the word dimension got thrown around a lot in science fiction. Um, you know, Mr. Mixit's Pidlick from Superman is from the fifth dimension. And what is the fifth dimension um let's not talk about that (laughs) okay but um like in sci-fi dimension came to kind of get used as like another word for like alternate reality or another plane of existence um which is not really what it's supposed to mean in this film uh the fourth dimension that the 4d man can sort of utilize is he can move through solid objects 
Um, oh. So he sort of can like, you know, to use D&D terms, he can become ethereal and like move through corporeal objects. So the the fourth dimension is the ethereal plane. I was thinking more Kitty Pride from X-Men. Yeah. So to use like sci-fi comic book terms, he's he's insubstantial like like Kitty Pride. He can he can move through solid Kitty objects. Kitty Pride's pretty substantial, Ben. <laughs> um <laughs> But you know, the use here of 4D is mostly just playing off the fact that like the common person knows the term 3D. We had had the 3D movie boom earlier in the 50s. So 4D here being used to just keep in that realm of like physical movement. He can move through the three dimensions, but by using the fourth dimension, he can like move through solid things is the idea here. Okay. And, um, you know. Really, this whole time we could have been saying that movies are in 4D. So, so. <laughs> Because a regular, a regular, time? A, a regular 3D, a 3D movie is a 4D movie. Yeah, that's. But a regular movie is just a 3D movie. <laughs> um, but yeah, you, you bring up a good point, which is like, we also still to this day will find like 4D or, or similar terms being utilized for like entertainment mediums like when you go see a 3d movie that also has like moving seats or whatever yeah or smell vision or whatever yeah those kind of like amusement park things where it's like the 3d um movie and you're in like a little like moving sort of flight simulator shuttle that like jostles (laughs) you around like that's get that gets called 4d a lot and so the thing that freaked me out seeing clips from this as a kid was just like this guy moving through like solid objects because the special effects here are like a little at least as i remember them as a kid just had like a very um surreal kind of quality to them uh with the way that they're done but i'm getting like kind of ahead of myself here. oh i'm sorry that would be because of me that's totally a fine um i see i'm i'm moving through the fourth dimension and and pushing you forward in time but now we need to move backward and tell us about the context setting yes so um this film is written and produced by jack harris and directed by irvin yeworth and that's the same team who made the blob Mm. in 1958 so as a reminder to our listeners we covered the blob in episode 250 and it is currently ranked at number 46 on the list not bad the blob had cost one hundred and ten thousand dollars to make and had made four million dollars uh so it was a huge hit for a brief recap the people who made the blob were evangelical christians oh yeah um who had started like their own production company valley forge shot the blob in the Valley Forge area with this plan of like, let's make a cheap sci-fi teen drive-in kind of movie to make a bunch of money. And we can use that to make like a bunch of Christian films. So they have the money. Right. They have now decided that having made this money, uh, they will not use it to make a series of Christian films, but in fact make another sci-fi picture because when you have money, you tend to want more, more money. Yeah. Yes. Um, so rather... But see, you know, with the profit they have from the blob, they could make some Christian movies. But with more money from the 4D man, they can make some more Christian movies. Yeah, rather than try to 
you know, ride that camel through the eye of that needle, they are (laughs) going to make the 4D man. So uh, using money from the blob, Jack Harris financed 4D man independently uh, on a budget of $300,000, which was the amount that Paramount had paid Harris for the distribution rights to the blob. Now, there was some talk at first of Paramount distributing 4D man, um, but Harrison Yeaworth were unable to come to a satisfactory deal with the studio, and they decided to press ahead on their own. They had made the blob by themselves, so like, what do they need Paramount for? Just like with the blob, Harris wrote and produced and Yeaworth directed, and in addition to Harrison Yeaworth, much of the crew of the blob returned for 4D Man as well. Um, this includes Bart Sloan on special effects and composer Ralph Carmichael. And now Carmichael had done the music for the blob. He would also, after this, go on to be heralded as the father of contemporary Christian music. So before getting involved with these filmmakers, um, he had been like a big band swing jazz enthusiast, but also like a major Christian. So he had started like a swing jazz big band, like Christian band that played like traditional Christian songs, but using like saxophones and drums, Yeah, which was highly controversial. Um, yeah, because church... saxophones are sex music. Yes, and, and so are drums. They have like a rhythm, and rhythm is what you fuck to. And so um, <laughs> so he was branded a heretic. Um, Holy shit. But it, it turned out that like normal people, like normal Christians who like music, liked good music that was Christian music. And so he became like very popular. The success of Carmichael's music in the 50s and then really into the 1960s um, led to like modern instruments and sounds coming to religious music, um, like the guitar. And so Carmichael's kind of seen as like the creator of Christian pop rock, basically. Amazing. Yeah. Now, there is no skillet without this guy. That is hilarious. Oh my God. Now, he had done the music to The Blob, um, but he didn't do the Beware of the Blob theme song. That was Burt Bacharach. Um, But Carmichael does the music for 4D Man as well, which has a very, like, modern, as in 1959, like, jazz, bebop kind of score. Um, So that'll be interesting. The lead role in this film, the titular 4D Man... Uh, was originally slated to be played by Steve McQueen Mm -hmm. um, because he had signed originally to like a three-picture deal with Harris, which was like the blob plus two more. However, Harris and Yeaworth had so disliked working with McQueen on the blob. They had butted heads so much that they dropped him from his contract, uh, which meant that they needed to look for a new star for 4D Man, and they picked 31-year-old actor Robert Lansing, who is here making his film debut. Now, that name sort of sounds familiar. Yeah. Or should I know who this person is? Yeah, you'll, you'll recognize him. What's funny is, like, if you squint, he kind of looks like Steve McQueen. 
Um, but he was born Robert Brown in San Diego in 1928. He attended high school in LA and he served in U.S. Armed Forces Radio during the Second World War. Moving to New York for a stage career, uh, he changed his name to Robert Lansing due to there already being a Robert Brown in Actors' Equity. 40 Man was his first feature film, though he had been acting on stage since 1951. His career, though, primarily would be on television. Okay. So he has this debut here, but it didn't lead to a film career. Uh, Instead, he became a very familiar face to audiences on television through the 1960s on shows like 87th Precinct and 12 O'Clock High. Um, He also played the role of Gary Seven on the episode Assignment Earth of the original Star Trek, which was meant as like a backdoor pilot to oh, a spin-off show. That guy. Okay. Yes. Yeah. yeah, he's this guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Who has like the cat secretary. Yes. Yeah, you got it. Um, he also appeared in the role of Control uh, on the TV show The Equalizer in the 1980s. And in the 1990s, he played a police captain uh, on the show Kung Fu, The Legend Continues, which I bring up mainly because his character's name was Paul Blaisdell. <laughs> He would pass away at 66 years old in 1994 of lung cancer. Yeah, that's quite young, but... Mm -hmm. But that's what smoking will do to you. Also making her first appearance in a feature film is Lansing's female co-star here, uh, actress Lee Merriweather. Born in L.A. in 1935, Merriweather won Miss San Francisco in 1953 Miss California in 1954, and Miss America in 1955. And this string of successes led to her becoming a Today Girl on the Today Show from 1955 to 1956. 4D Man, like with Robert Lansing, didn't exactly set her off to like a big film career, but she also found uh, a home on television. In the 1960s, she was guest starring on all kinds of shows. She was a regular on the sci-fi series The Time Tunnel. Um, She also guested on Star Trek. She appeared as Locira in the episode That Which Survives. And she played Catwoman in the 1966 movie version of the Batman television series. Okay. Um, She also appeared on the Batman TV series in two episodes, but as a different character as like Bruce Wayne's love interest. In the 1970s, uh, she became a regular on the long-running series Barnaby Jones for eight seasons. And in the 1980s, she took over the role of Lily Munster in the Munsters Today, like revival series of the Munsters. And then in the 1990s, she joined the cast of the soap opera All My Children. And today you can find her on the fan convention circuit talking about the time tunnel and Batman and Star Trek. Moving down the list of actors in this film, uh, co-star Robert Strauss uh, had been nominated for a Best Supporting Actor Oscar uh, for Stalag 17 in 1953. Uh, He had been in the play in 1951, um, but he was better known as a comedic actor in film and television through the 1950s and 60s. This is one of those guys who also guest starred kind of everywhere. He had a recurring role as a private investigator on Bewitched. Uh, He Mm. was one of the few mortal characters who knew that Samantha was a witch and was always trying to like prove it. He suffered from depression, uh, for which he received electroconvulsive therapy um, after 1968. 
which led to strokes, um, which prevented him from being able to continue acting and ultimately led to his death in 1975. That's too bad. Finally, uh, 4D Man also has a very early career appearance for actress Patty Duke. Um, she plays Lee Merriweather's like younger sister, like kid sister in this movie. Okay. Do I know who she is? Yes. Okay. So uh, Patty Duke was born Anna Marie Duke in 1946 in New York City. So she would have been 13 in this movie. She grew up in Queens. She had a father who suffered from alcoholism and a mother who had violent depression. Um, so when she was eight, uh, her care was turned over to some talent managers, uh, John and Ethel Ross, who were looking for like a girl to add to their like roster of child actors that they managed. Um, so they became Duke's new guardians. This is some like Dickensian shit. Yeah. No, it gets worse. Um, no. So Duke, basically her mom kind of like sold her to these people, more or less. Um, she never really saw her parents again after that. Um, and the Rosses were very exploitative and abusive. Um, they told her, Anna Marie is dead. You're Patty now. Um, because they decided to name her Patty Duke after child actress Patty McCormick, uh, who had played the girl in The Bad Seed. And uh, the Rosses typically billed Patty Duke as being like two years younger than she really was. Um, they kept the majority of her earnings as like their management fee. Mm -hmm. um, and they kept her compliant uh, with prescription drugs and they sexually abused her. She began appearing in television on commercials and in soap operas. And at age 12, she won an episode of the $64,000 Question, uh, which was a super popular game show at the time. That episode was revealed to have been rigged. She was basically told her answers ahead of time, um, which led to U.S. Senate hearings as part of the congressional investigation into the rigged game shows of the time. Um, a lot of the most popular game shows of the 1950s were rigged. It was a huge scandal when everyone found out at the end of the decade. It led to congressional hearings, which led to the FCC changing like rules about how game shows have to be run. It was a huge scandal. They made a movie about it in the 90s. Anyways, Patty Duke got dragged out in front of the Senate and had to testify about how she lied on TV to everyone. And... Um, yeah, uh, 4D Man was her third film appearance. It came just before her big breakout role, uh, which would be as the young Helen Keller in the Broadway play The Miracle Worker, which ran on Broadway from 1959 to 1961. Ironically, the role had been originated by Patty McCormick on TV in a Playhouse 90 episode, which then got like adapted into the Broadway play. The play was so successful that it led to a 1962 film adaptation, which also starred Duke, for which she won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress. I think that's how her name is familiar to me. So, yeah, like, at the time of this movie, she's 13, and all of her fame is kind of in her future, but a lot of, um, she's already been through, like, a lot of trauma, basically. Yeah, poor kid. So following conclusion of shooting on the 4D Man, distribution rights were sold to Universal International, who released the picture on October 7th, 1959. It was not nearly the hit 
that the blob had been. Um, Is it because they didn't have a theme song? Maybe. And maybe <laughs> also like it wasn't about teens. I don't know. Mm. We'll find out, right? Watching the movie. Um, it's very much like a mad scientist plays with forces beyond his control kind of movie. Um, however, 4D Man was successful enough to lead to a final Yeworth and Harris sci-fi picture, which I guess would have been the third movie in Steve McQueen's deal if he had stayed. Um, that movie was called Dinosaurus and was released in 1960. Uh, that film's failure led to the team splitting up. Yeworth focused on Christian films uh, until he retired to become a Christian tour guide in Israel. Um, and then Harris, on his part, continued to try and make it in the world of schlock cinema um, through the 70s and 80s. Will we be watching Dinosaurus? No, no. It's like a people go on an adventure to a land before time where giant dinosaurs fight each other kind of movie. Yeah, it didn't sound like it, but I thought I would ask. But we might see some future schlocky Jack Harris movies. Anyways, today, 4D Man is available on Blu-ray from Kino Lorber. Okay. Well, folks, hopefully you can grab a copy of 4D Man to watch along. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss 4D Man from 1959, directed by Irvin Yeworth. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching 4D Man from 1959, directed by Irvin Yeworth. Ben, first thoughts? I liked this movie. Yeah. I don't think it's a horror movie. I think that's up for debate because I think by the end it figures itself out, but it does take 40 minutes for things to fucking happen. True. Well, let's let's have a debate about it, but first let's talk about the story. Absolutely. So we follow kind of three main characters, Dr. Tony Nelson, his brother, Dr. Scott Nelson, and um their love interest, who is also Scott's like assistant and secretary, uh, Linda. When we start, we see Dr. Tony Nelson. He is working on basically an experiment that will have this like pencil go through this piece of steel um, and not just like pierce it, but like meld the molecules. He's using this uh, device he calls an amplifier um, that kind of creates some sort of like force field as he's doing this. Um, and he's working currently at a place called the Wells Factory, possibly named for H.G. Wells. Hmm. Uh, now this experiment, he turns the dials up too high and causes his experiment to explode. And so the Wells factory burns down and Mr. Wells is like, you're fired. Not a pun because he gets out alive, but now he is unemployed. So Tony heads to Pennsylvania to go see his brother, Scott. 
Now, Dr. Scott is here working at uh, what I will basically call the Carson Factory. <laughs> it is the Fairview Research Center, uh, which is a piece of trivia I only remember because Yeworth and Harris's like film production company is called Fairview Productions. Okay. Well, so the person who runs it is a Dr. Carson and uh, Scott is working on basically synthesizing this new material that will be called Carganite, uh, named after Mr. Carson, and like synthesizing this new metal that will be completely indestructible. Now, when Tony comes here to meet up with his brother, he meets Scott's assistant Parker and Linda. And this immediately sparks between Linda and Tony, uh, much to the chagrin of Scott, who is uh, considers him and Linda an item and going steady and plans to ask her to marry him. Yet Scott doesn't really do anything to like stop Tony and Linda from having sparks fly. Yeah, that's the whole thing with with Scott. He is very like, I'll just ride this wave. Like I'm comfortable um linda's here this like later on in the story when we learn a little bit more about the relationship uh linda says to scott that like you don't actually want to marry me you're just comfortable with me around uh it's more out of habit um and you kind of see that with scott's professional relationship as well with uh dr carson who um takes credit for all of the work that all of his scientists do and Scott's like, yeah, but like, whatever, I get to do my work, whatever. Now, as they are trying to synthesize Carganite, um, occasionally Scott leaves the safety of the control room and goes down to check on the materials. Um, you know, not directly. He's looking through like a little like looking glass, but there's still like a chance of radiation poisoning. Um, so he does get, like, regular updates with his doctor. On one such occasion, the doctor tells Scott that, like, yeah, like, you look fine, all your tests are coming back fine, I'm not sure why you're having this chronic pain and these chronic headaches, um, but your brain does seem to have some, like, extra activity, like, extra power, extra waves. As these headaches and, like, this, like, extra brain power grows, we see Scott growing a little bit more, I'll say, impatient with some of uh, what Dr. Carson does, um, a little bit more assertive with some of his ambitions, including trying to ask Linda to marry him. Over the course of these experiments and, and this growing change in Scott, it's like about six months-ish, I, I feel like they kind of establish at least a few weeks Tony ends up working at the factory, or the research center, I should say, and uh, Tony and Linda are getting closer and closer. So when Scott learns about Linda and Tony basically going steady, um, he goes into a bit of a rage, he gets like a killer headache, and um, basically opens up Tony's locker and sees that Tony has continued to work on this like experiment of pushing matter through. And we do get some kind of explanation a little bit earlier in the film that this is all based off of a theory Tony has where he saw um, this piece of like lead and this piece of gold kind of merged together. 
um, almost like a melding of their atoms. And it happened through a lot of pressure and over a period of like, say, 50 years. So Tony's theory is that, well, maybe if we could like speed up that process, so it's like five minutes instead of 50 years, then we would be able to like pass through things. Um, so there's the time 4D element. Seeing Tony's equipment, Scott begins to just like fuck around with it and starts doing his own experiment with it. And suddenly both the pencil and his hand go through the steel. Now he does bring in Tony to see, you know, hey, I managed to do this. Come see this. Let me replicate this for you. And Tony sees that the amplifier that he built, that is supposedly like what makes this happen, actually isn't working. So Scott is doing this all on his own. It's worth stating that like when Tony explains his theory to Scott the first time, he notes that like he doesn't think that the amplifier is the thing that pushes the matter through things. He thinks the amplifier is something that amplifies his own brain waves and that he like the one time he got it to work he like willed it to happen which makes it sound like gobbledygook to everyone else um but <laughs> he's is, reading the secret right exactly but when scott's able to do it uh, and even without the amplifier um this is where the like well scott's brain waves are more powerful than other people's thing like connects yes now while tony and scott are like doing all of this um, experiment, uh, Parker manages to get away with Tony's notes. Parker, who is kind of ambitious in his own career goals, I would say more like recognition. He wants the prestige of a, of a position. He takes these notes to Carson, implies they are his, and says, like, I should get a big promotion and lead like a research team and get all the girls, you know, <laughs> <laughs> as Scott is discovering this new ability of his, um, his moods are getting a little irregular and like, he's kind of like really excited about this, but he doesn't want Carson to know. Um, he explicitly forbids Tony from telling Carson anything because he wants this to be his own invention. Um, despite the fact that it's his brother's, but whatever, and while kind of excited about this new found ability, Scott goes for a walk in the middle of the night down a, a street and he can like phase through glass to get a, uh, an apple from the grocery store. And then he phases through a jewelry store, um, but doesn't take that jewelry because he sees a bank. Next thing we know, uh, Scott is like asleep in bed and he's like slowly waking up, almost like he has a hangover and he's aged like visibly and so it becomes clear that like using this phase power ages scott because of that idea of like well you're speeding up time uh to merge through the material yeah uh, so you age yourself exactly it's like you're using the equivalent energy of like years off your life to do it basically mm-hmm now, Scott's kind of freaked out by this, so he goes to see his doctor and accidentally touches him and phases through his doctor, and his doctor rapidly ages and dies of old age in front of him. But Scott is a little bit more rejuvenated because he's literally sucked the life force from his doctor. A stealing time from other people, basically. <laughs> 
Now he ends up going to Dr. Carson because Carson's like, so you have any more ideas that I could maybe steal to make some money? And Scott goes to him and basically kills him. Dr. Carson's already like soups old, so it's not going to look as suspicious as the doctor, but it's a pretty chilling scene. I think it's really well done. And basically Carson is like, Oh, I'll give you like more money. Like if like, that's what you want, I'll give you more recognition, whatever. And Scott's like, yeah, tell me more things that you would give me to prolong your life. Like just, I don't know. It's milked really good. Um, but Carson gets killed and you can kind of see how like Scott is, um, ambition doesn't feel like the right word for uh, where his um, interests now lie because it's more about like getting the recognition he always felt he was deserved getting the money and swapping the bank getting the women getting the power yeah it's it's a power trip thing yes so basically scott ends up on the run (laughs) because of like the robbery these two murders he keeps accidentally killing some people um like he uh picks up a girl from a bar and then when he goes to kiss her he accidentally phases a little bit and she um dies of old age so the list of victims is climbing tony and linda like they're both like pretty upset about this but tony discovers the money from the bank and the police mentioned to Tony that there was like a thousand dollar bill that's like halfway through the wall or something. So Tony puts things together pretty quick. Um, sidebar. I didn't know there were thousand dollar bills. I didn't know there were thousand dollar bills. That's pretty cool. Um, I don't know if they still exist, but anyways, so Tony goes to the cops and he's like, it's my brother. Let's figure out how to stop him. To the police's credit, like, Tony explains the whole 4D man thing. And the cops are like, huh, that's really fucked up. I don't know how we're going to be able to catch him then. <laughs> and like they, the movie doesn't spend a lot of time on like the police being like, ah, that's nonsense. Get out of here, doc. Like, which is, is nice because that's always just kind of a big waste of time in these movies. Yeah. So Tony comes up with this plan that he will use his amplifier to create a force field to protect himself so he can basically stop Scott and convince him to turn himself in. Now, Parker, always on the lookout for a chance to get some recognition, leaks this plan to the press. So Scott ends up coming to the factory, coming to the research center to find and destroy the amplifier because nothing can stop him. Before going on the run, Scott had hid the amplifier in the like radiation chamber. Um, and so while he goes in there to get it, Tony turns on the radiation. And Scott's like, my own brother tried to kill me. How dare he? And we see that the radiation actually has no effect on him. Scott manages to corner Linda. Now, this will be the second time that he's threatened Linda with the idea of like, come with me because I can give you everything you, you might have wanted. And he tries again here, like, Linda, like, come with me. You're the only thing I want. Um, we can have all the power, all the money in the world. And all he basically wants is a kiss. So she leans in to kiss. He doesn't phase. So, you know, corporeal, physical touch. And then she shoots him point blank. Yeah, because it was sort of brought up earlier, like a potential plan would be like, you can't stop him while he's 
4D, so you need to present him with something that he would want that he can't get if he's 4D. So that was kind of set up a little bit earlier, and then we have this payoff here where Linda shoots him. Um, so as he is bleeding, he's ranting, I'm indestructible, and phases through parts of the building, including into some of the carganite, which was supposed to be indestructible. Impenetrable. Impenetrable. Um, and that's the end. Question mark? The movie ends with a question mark, just like the blob did. So there's a lot that happens in this movie, and I skipped over quite a bit um, to streamline things. Is there anything else that I might have missed that you want to mention? I don't think so specifically. Um, it takes this movie a while to really get going. Like you already brought up, it's like 40, 50 minutes, something like that. But I do feel like it actually used the time it spends setting up the characters and their relationships and their wants and their needs really well. Um, I think the script for this movie is pretty well written. It's very like adult. Um, it explores like some pretty complex characters whose motivations um, are a little bit more like recognizably human and yet a little bit more emotionally complex than mm -hmm. we tend to like get in these movies. Like Scott's a very complex guy. Tony's kind of like the flip side of the same coin, right? Where like Scott's like, Hey, I work a job. Like I'm dependable. I'm the head of this like research team. Even if Scott like doesn't really care about like going down in the history books. Whereas Tony's like, I have this crackpot theory that I have to prove and I'm willing to kind of be like, a bit of a bum hoboing around between odd jobs in order to like, you know, get things done on my own terms. And they're kind of this like mirror image of each other that swaps, you know, as Scott becomes like, I'm the 4d man and I can do anything. And Tony becomes like the more level headed, reliable one with Linda. Then you have like Parker with his whole, like, um, you know, he doesn't really have like the talent to be the head of a research team, but he wants the recognition and you have like Carson, who's kind of the old guy in charge. Like, I don't know, just all these characters feel very real, like real yeah. human archetypes. I really liked the themes of you, you work at a company and the company gets the recognition for what you produce mm -hmm. because like that gets mentioned here and there with a the mad scientist of like, we're cutting your funding um, kind right. of thing, but it's never really explored in what feels like a more realistic way. Yeah, this feels very like modern and like modern America as opposed to the traditional like the the council of scientists from the university laughed at me or whatever. I'll mad, show all of them. Yeah, mad scientist motivation, which feels very like 1600s Victor Frankenstein kind of thing. Um, and I also liked that we see that theme from many different sides. We see it from Tony when he's like mad at Mr. Wells for like firing him because mm -hmm. he burned down his factory. We see it from Scott, like early Scott's point of view of like, yeah, man, like it makes sense. They are literally like paying me to make a thing for them. Mm -hmm. But then also his turn of like, but I want something of my own. Yeah. And then you have Parker who wants the credit without any of the work. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. The themes in the movie are basically jealousy and ego. And this is also shown through the brothers and their relationship with Linda, where like 
Scott has Linda and then Tony comes in and she falls in love with Tony. Um, and we find out that actually Tony has like stolen girls from Scott in the past, but it doesn't work out because Tony's not a dependable person who you can like build a life with because of his like crackpot theory thing. Um, he just happens to be like more square jawed and like deeper voiced than uh, <laughs> Scott. So he's a bit more charismatic. Um, and so, yeah, this like kind of ego jealousy thing between the brothers, the fact that once Scott is able to do the 4D thing, he starts thinking of it as like his discovery, even though it's entirely his brother's. And so he's actually stealing from his brother in the same way that others were stealing from him. Like it's a consistent theme and it's well written and i think the script in addition to being very like adult and mature and how it explores these characters and their issues it's also like surprisingly smart in the way that it handles the science stuff um mm -hmm. the science is is nonsense but it's nonsense that sounds pretty good the fact that the 4d thing turned out to be time of like yeah the way that you can phase through things is by like using more energy and that's going to take like years off your life um, and cause like your cells to degrade. And then you can like steal time from other people to regenerate. Like that was much smarter than I thought we were going to get in this movie. Um, Definitely. The fact that like even the experiments we see happening here where it's like they're the research center is like government funded because the military wants this impenetrable metal. And what we see them doing is they've got, materials in nuclear reactors that they're bombarding with different kinds of radiation because what they're trying to do is like affect the material on like an atomic level so that there's you know no gaps in the material that something could possibly penetrate through and that just shows such a more intelligent and modern and like oh i bothered to look something up attitude towards de depicting the science than like all of these movies where it's like science consists of like a workbench and a Bunsen burner and a bunch of like test tubes. And that's how we science. It's like, no, it's 1959. We science by shooting radiation at things. <laughs> yeah, I completely agree. And while I was losing patience with the movie through the 40 minutes of like love triangle mm -hmm. whatever and like oh here's like tony going on the road cue uh incredible health right. theme um i think that it helped ground yes everything that was going on later yeah um like definitely the drama and in my opinion definitely the horror like you feel the despair of tony having to kill his brother yeah i think that like the movie's well made and it's well directed and like scenes of Tony and Linda, like frolicking through the grass, playing games at the playground or whatever being cute. Like you're sitting there being like, why is this in my sci-fi horror movie? But it's, you know, it makes their love relationship, their attraction believable because we can see the chemistry and we see the sparks flying and we see those moments where they forge a connection with each other aside from just it being there in the dialogue. And yeah. I also think that the main actors are all trying to give like real mm -hmm. actual good performances. I think your mileage may vary on whether they succeeded. Um, but I think that the core group of like Scott, Tony and Linda works really well. Um, the actor who plays Tony never really went on to do 
much of anything else other than this. And he's maybe the weakest of the three. The three tr- yeah, in the main trio. But he is still like trying to give a real performance. Yeah, I found him a little humdrum until he has to sell the like, oh God, what is happening? Oh God, your hand. And like having to amp things up. Lee Merriweather as Linda was really well done. I really enjoyed the gun moment. uh, And I think she does a really good job of uh, balancing the her character's assertiveness of basically going after Tony without it coming off as like slutty. Right. right? Which is like a concern when it's like a Christian movie. Sure. Right. Sort of. Yeah. She's very believably like an adult human woman, basically where like, she's the one who starts flirting with Tony. Like Tony doesn't really steal her away from Scott so much as she meets Tony and decides she'd rather be with him and it's believable like her falling in love with him feels believable she feels believable as a working professional woman Mm -hmm. who is an assistant to scott but is also like as i said a human woman with like emotions and complexity there isn't any of the like false dichotomy of like I can't be a woman if I'm going to be a scientist kind of thing going on here. There's no like, I don't understand how hot I am because I wear glasses and my hair's in a ponytail. Like, no, she's like a fashionable, modern, fucking normal ass woman person, right? Like, And I like that she's given dialogue like being able to call Scott out on like, you're just used to me. Mm -hmm. Um, And the way that she you know, is talking in the climax. Like, Mm. I don't know. She's given like some really good lines. Yeah. The movie script shows like an understanding of human nature. That's very like mature. Um, that impressed me. Um, I think that Robert Lansing gives the best performance in the movie. And I think it's clear that he's the like most well-trained actor in the cast. Um, Sometimes, however, it has the effect of almost putting him out of step with everyone else where like he's acting in a style suited towards like a stage drama. Mm -hmm. And it's not that it's bad or that it's overacting, but it makes him feel conspicuous next to everyone else's performance styles at times. Like most of the time it works quite well, um, but occasionally it, it veers into feeling a little over the top. Yeah, I, that can often happen with stage actors because they're used to having to act for like the people in the back row, uh, which I feel like we, we've mentioned once or twice. But mm-hmm. um, I really enjoy his scene when he confronts Carson. Yeah, that to me is like like so right before that basically is when we see the doctor age rapidly. And what I appreciated about that was like it's happening and we see it and it's not just like oh no uh but you hear scott's reactions of being like holy fuck shit like obviously yeah, he doesn't in like say 19- that it's 1959 but he's like reacting in a very believable way and then the turn when he's confronting carson and doing it on purpose and mm. like he gets this like grin and almost like laugh in his voice when it's it's not like he's turning into the joker but he has a feeling of like oh no okay you're not right in the head right now Hmm. so we could dive into this topic of like is this movie horror or not i think before we do that 
Let's just talk about some of the things in this movie that are a little weak. Okay. The music is good music, but it does not fit this movie. So here's the problem with the music. So the music is, as I kind of mentioned in the context setting a little bit, it's basically like bebop jazz. It's like, it's like beatnik mm-hmm. jazz. It's, it's, so here's, here's the thing. <laughs> and I talked about this, I think a little bit when maybe it was when we were watching the bat or it might've been another film, but the, the problem with this music in 2023 is that the context around this style of music has changed. Yeah. So if you're hearing music of this style in a movie nowadays, it's probably a movie that's trying to go for like a heist feel. Yeah. Like this is the music where if you were to hear this and I was to say, what genre is this of movie? You would say it's a heist movie. But in 1959, this is just contemporary music, right? It doesn't have that kind of genre fixation. We just associate it with that genre because heist movies became like the the classic era of heist movies kind of came about when this genre of music was contemporary. So it is just contemporary music. The people making this movie didn't know like this isn't supposed to be horror music or sci-fi music even, but it definitely doesn't help the movie feel like horror. It doesn't help the movie feel like you're supposed to be on the edge of your seat or, well, you're on the edge of your seat, but it it changes the tone of things, right? Yeah. It makes things like exciting and kind of tense in that heist movie way, but it doesn't make things like scary or horrifying or shocking in the way that like, you know, a Bernard Herrmann's score might. So yeah, the music is fun, but it's not maybe the best music for this material. And it's one of the reasons why this doesn't feel like horror to me. I think the special effects are done very well. Mm -hmm. Um, The old age makeup uh, sometimes looks better than others, but I think for the most part looks really good. I think the matting uh, where like, you know, he sticks his hand in and it disappears into a mailbox or whatever. I think that's done and they have some fun with it, like with the mailbox. And uh, both of us noted when um, uh, Scott is reaching through glass, Mm -hmm. it's actually not a matting effect. They just have like a rim light basically. So it looks like an animated, my hands going through something, but it's actually done. Would that be called all in camera? Yeah. That's an in camera effect basically. It's, there's a lot of clever stuff being done here. I think the thing I appreciate most about the mat work for when he's passing through things is that there's an effort to make it three-dimensional. Mm-hmm. So he's not just like, you know, the flat piece of film passing through the other flat piece of film that you might associate in your head with like watching ghosts go through walls in like movies and things like that. Instead, there's this attempt to like, if he passes through something like we see like, his tie maybe first and then like the rest of his chest start to emerge and you know as if we're getting you know kind of cross sections of him as he three-dimensionally moves through the thing right like one leg comes through the wall and then the other um so that's really well done and it must have taken like a lot more effort than just doing a compositing effect yeah so i think i think it's done very well and i liked the gradual aging of scott yeah But in terms of 
weaker things in this movie. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the music's definitely like one that sticks out immediately. Um, the other stuff that I think is a little weak is as much as all of the subplots in this movie contribute to the movie's, um, themes really well, some of them don't really go anywhere. Yeah. Like the whole subplot of like Parker stealing Tony's notes so he can pass them off as his own to Carson's to try and get his own team, um, doesn't really end up going anywhere because it's sort of implied that Carson kind of thinks they're not Parker's notes right away. Cause he brings Scott into his office and is like, Hey, are you working on something? And Scott's like, no. And then later when Scott goes to kill Carson, he's like, actually, yeah, those are, those are my, my notes or whatever on the, this 4d thing. And Carson doesn't seem super surprised by that. But anyways, then Carson's dead and Parker kind of fades into the background until it's time for him to like be a slime ball and like leak the news to the press so that he can have his moment in the sun. And then he's basically like immediately killed right after that. So he's he's there as an element, but it never quite connects all the way. The other thing that is definitely for me a weak point in this movie is that the ending is much too sudden and unclear. You kind of called it from early on in the movie that it was like, you know, going to be a irresistible force meets unstoppable object kind of thing of like, well, he's going to get stuck in the Carganite, right? The Carganite's going to be the thing that mm -hmm. stops him because they set it up as being this impenetrable metal, but they, they don't do as good a job at dotting the I's and crossing the T's on that because they instead go with this whole, like Linda lures him into the trap thing she shoots him and that's good on a character level, right? Like that's a great ending for the character stories, but then they still kind of want to have their clever sci-fi ending too, but it's not like any kind of conscious thing. It's not like Scott's ranting about how he can pass through anything and someone realizes like, oh, we should egg him on and get him into the Carganite. Maybe that'll stop him. And then they are like, Scott, I bet you can't go through Carganite. And then he's like, oh, watch me. Instead, it's just Scott's kind of rambling about how he can go through anything. And he's like, I bet I can even go through Carganite. And then he goes into the wall and then he just doesn't come out. And then there isn't even like a shot where we cut back to Linda and Tony being like, oh, no it must be that he can't go through the Carganite. He must be trapped in there forever. What does that even mean? The end question mark. It's just, he goes into the Carganite, doesn't come back out, the end question mark. So it's just a little too sudden and unclear as to what happened. Yeah, I kind of wish they had kept his hand like phased out. Yeah. I thought they were going to do that with the way that he was phasing in, but it it didn't go anywhere. Yeah. So I think those are for me, the weaker elements of this movie. I would agree. So was there anything else you wanted to touch on or do you want to talk about the genre issue? How is Carganite named after Carson? Yeah. Shouldn't it be Carsonite? Right. But maybe people would think carcinogen. I don't know. I don't know, man, but that bothered me throughout. And then also sometimes I would hear it as carbonite. Yeah, from like, Star Wars. Carbon, what? Huh? Um, so that that's just a minor, sure. minor little thing. Um, yeah, so I kind of tried to explain why I thought this was horror. Um, because I, I think the characters are delivering that. I think uh, to your point about the music, they aren't not 
trying to make it horror. Right. You know, um, I even went so far to look at like the poster and stuff before stuff ramped up in the movie. And it's like, yeah, sci-fi horror. But it was really when people started reacting to the doctor's death and to Carson's death that I was like, oh, yeah, I think this is horror. So on paper, yes. And I think you can really see how it was easily marketed that way. The trailer for this movie totally emphasizes the idea of like, basically that it's an energy vampire movie. Like the trailer is like, there's this guy who can like suck your life force out of you and you age and die. And then he becomes younger. Like that's the thing that the trailer emphasizes. And that's definitely the horror element in the movie. Right. I think there's absolutely a version of this movie that could exist that I would have found to definitely be horror. Maybe it's an element of like a different score, but I also just think that like the way the movie places emphasis, the way it does shot choice and editing choice to me ultimately doesn't put the emphasis on the horror elements, except in a few like specific scenes. Um, The time where he murders Carson is one. The other time that really sticks out to me is there's a time where he confronts Linda in her like bedroom, like late at night. And he's like looming over her in the shadows. And that was at least one time where I felt like the cinematography was really going for horror. And she like runs down the stairs from her bedroom screaming. And then she gets to the front door to like leave the house. And he's there at the front door. That was definitely like a horror scene. But I keep thinking about this in comparison to something like The Fly, whether it's the 50s one or the 80s one, in terms of being a similar movie of like, there's this scientist and there's like a love relationship thing and he's losing his humanity over the course of the film by becoming intoxicated on this power and it turns him into a monster and how that's like ultimately a tragedy. And to me, it just felt like there wasn't enough of like, Scott understanding the horror of what was happening to him. It it just felt like there could have been a bit more emphasis on like the idea that what is happening to Scott is a bad thing and not just that we need to stop Scott from doing bad things. And I also feel like the, the scenes where he's um, killing people are for the most part, all staged, Um, kind of from his POV, not literally, but in terms of like who the audience is being asked to empathize with, we're sort of with Scott. And I feel like if we were with his victims POV more, it would be more horrifying. That's one of the reasons why the Carson and Linda scenes work well, because they're like established characters, whereas like, you know, the implied sex worker that he picks up is not, um, And then there's the fact that, so Patty Duke, who we haven't mentioned, plays this little girl named Marjorie. I thought she was supposed to be Linda's sister, but upon watching the movie, it's more clear that like Linda lives in a house where she's like renting a room with this woman who has a daughter. So Linda like looks after the daughter sometimes as a babysitter. Marjorie's like, you know, 10 or whatever. And we meet her in a scene early on. And then later there's a scene where like when Scott's on the run and he's looking real haggard, he bumps into Marjorie and he's trying to warn Marjorie off. And Marjorie like insists on like, no, I want to play with you or whatever, which is a weird thing to insist because she just thinks he's like a weird homeless man. Um, And he's like, yeah, we will play a game. And then we just never see Marjorie for the rest of the movie. And the implication is that like he killed her for energy 
but the movie totally shies away from showing us that we don't get him approaching marjorie menacingly we don't get her scream like it's more tame in its implications of what happened than like 31 frankenstein with killing maria and i really felt like if we had gone for it with killing marjorie that would have definitely pushed a line into horror for sure i also just had like a morbid curiosity of like would stealing time from marjorie turn her into like a shriveled up old child like the psychic kids in akira or would it like age her into like a teenage woman or something you know what i mean it it for the science to work, it should be the Akira version. But I was curious to see what they would do, and then we didn't get to see any of it. So to me, I, I was like, I can see how this could be horror, but it felt like the emphasis was much more on the like sci-fi premise of like what would this do to a person. But that was just my feeling. You felt like it was horror, and so... I feel like I'm, I'm willing to be talked into it, you know, if you feel strongly. And I will say that I do agree with you that despite the fact that it makes you go like, when are we going to get to the fireworks factory? The very <laughs> non-horror first 40 minutes of this movie does help increase the impact of the later scenes. Yeah. So um, I definitely see what you're saying about the deaths being from Scott's point of view. And how that can be a weakness. I I think they would have to change how they were using some of the themes hmm. for it to not be Scott's point of view and for him to like have more of a realization of like, what a monster I am, like what we saw with like quite a mass experiment, for example. Mm -hmm. Because the theme of ego means that he has to be super into it, right? Right. Um, like all of the Star Trek episodes of like turning into a god, right? Mm -hmm. I, I think, though, that there are moments where he has, like, what am I doing? Like, his, like, frantic searching through books uh, gives a sense of some desperation. The fact that he is trying to warn Marjorie away. Definitely a big plot hole. Well, plot? I don't know. Definitely a big hole in the movie that we don't know what happens to Marjorie. They just lost their nerve. I they think. really did. Her hair is in pigtails and everything. Like, yeah. come on. Yeah. Marjorie, Maria, like, come on, guys. I think the fact that the first 40 minutes lead us to be pretty grounded by this trio of people means that the horror that is expressed with those three people is where the movie is trying to draw its horror mm. from, right? Uh, so the fact that Tony gets moments of being like, no, it has to be me that takes down my brother. Mm -hmm. And like the the dread on his face with that. The fact that it ultimately is Linda and Tony rushes in. I, I think that that gives weight. And I think that the movie is giving weight to their emotions in determining that this is a within the horror genre. Um, and I think the fact that like the first person to die, we don't shy away from like we to only seeing Scott's reaction. Like we see full, full throttle, full frontal. I don't know what the word is, but like right in the middle of the screen, dude, aging close up, close up. And it's like they go far. It's not just like, oh, now I'm an old man. Like, no, they push it. 
I I think that they are trying to go for horror. Mm. I think even like the marketing material shows that. I would agree that like with its unevenness and the points that you've called out and even the music to uh, our contemporary times um, means that it's not going to be ranked as a particularly super effective horror but i do think it is still horror sure there's sort of a thing of like when you do genre blends um and you know sidebar we've been in the 1950s where sci-fi horror has been like the name of the game for so long that we can almost kind of forget that sci-fi horror is a genre blend Mm -hmm. like almost all sci-fi of the 50s is sci-fi horror and almost all horror of the 50s is sci-fi horror but but it is a genre blend and in terms of those blends you know you can have occasions where one flavor is stronger than the other where like the fly is more like sci-fi horror and 4d man is more like sci-fi horror you know Mm -hmm. um so I, I can kind of get that. Like it still has those elements. Maybe it still should rank on the list, but it shouldn't rank as highly as movies that are much more like purposefully planting their flag in the horror side of things. Yeah. Like for example, Quatermass Experiment is number 18. 4D Man is not going near that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Blob is 46. 4D Man ain't going near that. Yeah. Um, But I do feel like it deserves a spot on the list. Okay. I picked out a range, but it's a really big range because I didn't really feel like this was horror. So I picked out like an emergency range in case (laughs) we decided that it was horror and didn't end up really knowing where to place it because of it hitting that, you know, weird sort of mix of elements of like, this is a good movie, but not a good horror. So how do you rank it on a list of best to worst horror movies, right? Yeah, definitely am pleasantly surprised at how good this was. Mm-hmm. So I expect that because of my feeling that this wasn't really horror, that I think my range is probably going to be lower than yours. It's also very big. Well, mine's quite narrow. So where were you looking? So I kind of started looking from the bottom up. Okay. Um, and at number uh, 218, we have Song at Midnight. And I felt like 40 Man, if we were counting it as horror, is definitely better than anything below that. Uh, stuff like Bride of the Gorilla and Return of the Ape Man. Like stuff where it just is going to be better than all of these just purely on the it's a well-made movie like criteria Um, and I was looking up from there and above that point we have like a weird mix of things where like movies like the mummy that are much better made are below movies like plan nine from outer space that we enjoyed more right and so it's this weird kind of part of the list where these contradictions occur so I was looking up and trying to figure out you know okay where do I hit something that's definitely better than for D-Man. And in my brain, what I was looking for is where do I hit something that's more horrific than for D-Man? Like the, the, the floor was determined by it's a better movie than all of these. The ceiling is determined by, I think these things are more horror. And I hit uh, Spanish Dracula at 185, which we are not the fans of that most film critics tend to be. Um, but it certainly is going for it. Um, it's going too hard 
but it is going for it. And below Spanish Dracula is House of Horrors, which is one of the um, Rondo Hatton movies. Uh, so, yeah. yeah. So I ended up making 186 my ceiling. So 186 to 219 is the range I ended up with. Oh, no. Yeah. So I'm guessing you're much higher. Uh, unfortunately, yes. Um, I used the blob as, you know, a waypoint. Hmm. As I said, it's at number 46. We're definitely going below. Um, so as I started looking below, my eyes kind of fell to the leopard man at 84, hmm. where that movie has that really powerful scene. And then the rest of it is kind of like a um, criminal investigation. Yeah, it's a serial killer movie, basically. Yeah, where the dude uses a leopard to kill people. Um, and I was like, you know what? I think this is kind of comparable, right? Like that leopard scene comes like early in the movie, well, on the early end, and then the rest of it kind of like continues on and finally ends like it doesn't peter out hmm. but it it finally ends whereas this movie it takes a while for 40 man to get going but once it starts it starts um so i felt like maybe we should look above the leopard man um hence my uh-oh hmm. from where you were looking ultimately um my eyes then fell to 78 i was a teenage frankenstein which missed the point about teen movies um, and focused too much on the uh, adult, but... It got the point of Frankenstein. It did. 4D-Man missed the point of teens that saw the blob success, but really hammered home what they were doing. It wasn't like they fucked up with teens. Like, they, they weren't making a teen movie. Right. So I made that my floor... Looking up, I was like, the Tingler feels kind of comparable in the way that, like, some people were better actors than others. But I felt like, no, we can't go above the Tingler, um, particularly with that, um, the scare sequence of uh, the mute woman um, and, like, the burst of color and everything. So that was my range, 73 to 78. Okay. That's too high for me. Yeah, what would be the range, like the midpoint between seventy eight and one eighty six? Um, I don't know, but I would like to direct your attention to Doctor X at number one thirty eight. Yeah, this is more like the area of the list I think we should be in. That's a really good point because, like, Phantom of the Room Morgue is here, which um. I think is very grisly, but still has the ape orangutan thing. Mm. Um, the The actual midpoint is one thirty two. I just oh, so, I just looked at it. So so we're in this ballpark. Yeah. Um, looking down from Doctor X, we have stuff like Man from Planet X, the Rue Morgue movies. We also have My World Dies Screaming, which was the subliminal messaging movie. Um, the Killer Shrews, and then there's Zombies of Moria Tau at 144 yeah and stuff below this like i see the alligator people where like its themes were there but it kind of fumbled whereas 4d man didn't fumble those themes 4d man is definitely better than zombies of moratow yeah i think that's for certain 
my question is like, how high do we go from here? And at what point does like the horror of some of these movies outweigh for D man? I say above zombies of Moritau, but not above the killer shrews because who boy with those killer shrews more terrifying than, Oh no, I'm aging, which is wild <laughs> by the way. Like it's, it's, I was pleasantly surprised that 4D man that I liked it as much as I did. I kind of expected it to be dumber, but the killer shrews is much more effective as a horror movie than it has any, any right, right to, to be. be. Yeah. It's so good. And thanks to that episode, I also know a lot of useless shrew facts that I amaze people with. So yes. Uh, <laughs> okay. So is this where you want to go? Yeah, I like this. I think I'm totally okay with that. So entering the list at the new number 144 is 4D Man from 1959, directed by Irvin Yeworth. I like that it's going in at uh, like 144, you know, synergy. Good stuff. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, ScreamScenePodcast.com. There you can find links to the many episodes we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, literally any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter, Hive, and we are just now on Spoutable. Mm, that reminds me, I got to get us on Mastodon. Uh, uh, you can find us on those places at scream scene that's right send us a social media message to let us know which social media platform you think will come out on top uh (laughs) when the dust settles scream scene updates every wednesday on apple podcasts google podcasts soundcloud and spotify you can subscribe to the show using our rss feed you can help the show out by leaving us a rating or a review on the podcasting app of your choice that helps the algorithm to recommend us to people. If you want to bypass algorithms and maintain a human personal connection, you can recommend the show to people yourself, whether it's over one of those battling social media platforms or just in person over uh, a beer or a lunch. Just tell people, hey, there's this cool podcast I think you would love. We really appreciate that kind of support. We also really appreciate financial support. Money makes the world go round, and you can make our world go round by going to patreon.com slash podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. For one dollar, we will thank you on the show for your patronage, but for five dollars a month, you'll also get access to regular bonus content, typically consisting of cut audio from past episodes. If you go beyond that to the $10 level, you're going to get access to like essays and reviews and short stories and all kinds of like bonus writing that Sarah and I um, occasionally find time to do. And um, there's also just a huge wealth on our Patreon of like old bonus content. Every October, we really pump a lot out. uh, So you can explore like music and audiobooks and all kinds of crazy cool stuff that we've done. Additionally, patrons at all levels get to vote in our monthly horror-adjacent bonus episode polls. Fairly soon, we will have a fun episode coming out about hair-raising hair, uh, the Bugs Bunny cartoon that introduced the character of Gossamer. And for March's upcoming 
horror adjacent bonus episode. The poll is really strongly going for them from 1954. I suspect because of listeners going, why didn't you cover them for the regular podcast? In which case, you'll have to listen to find out. So if you want to get involved in any of that goodness, head on over to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast. So Ben, what are we watching next week? Next week, Sarah, we are heading back to Mexico uh, for El Hombre y el Monstro. The Man and the Monster? Yes, it is a movie about a pianist who sells his soul to the devil to become the world's best pianist. But when he plays a specific piece on his piano, he turns into a monster. So just don't play that piece. I don't know. We'll find out why he can't avoid that when there's so many classical piano pieces (laughs) to play next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.